Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we are on the eve of so-called Barbieheimer. Hollywood has high hopes for two big movies, both out on Thursday. They've created a bit of a rivalry even between Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's biopic of the father of the atomic bomb called Oppenheimer, two very different movies. We find out why the real winner could be the box office, already suffering through a pretty lackluster 2023 so far. July 20th marks 50 years since the death of martial arts and movie legend Bruce Lee. We look back at his incredible and enduring legacy and some of the events planned around the anniversary, including a big one coming up in Vancouver. Irish author Liz Nugent joins me to talk about her fifth book, her new book called Strange Sally Diamond, a great if sometimes grim multi-layered page turner that focuses on the reclusive and very socially awkward title character as we learn more about the early childhood horrors that she survived that made her the way she is. But her humor and unique insight make for a really great read. First, former Federal Labor Minister Lisa Raitt joins us to give us her unique perspective on the ongoing labor dispute involving more than 7,000 B.C. port workers, why there's so much at stake, how the Trudeau government seems to have been struggling to stay on top of the battle that's already seen a 13-day work stoppage and billions of dollars of cargo stalled. Let's begin with the twists and turns of a real-life drama that played out today in that major labor dispute that could and already has uh, had a huge impact on the Canadian economy. Remember last night we were talking about the fact that the union representing 7,400 workers at BC Ports had announced they'd rejected a mediated agreement to end their 13-day strike that stalled billions of dollars worth of cargo in uh, some of the most important ports in this entire country. Well, this morning, that and, and they had actually walked off the job again. Well, this morning... Um, The Canadian Industrial Relations Board declared that that was illegal because they hadn't given 72 hours notice to go back out on strike. So strike off. But, said the union, we're going to go out on strike on Saturday morning. So nothing had been sorted just yet. This all comes after they rejected this mediated agreement that had been uh, agreed to, or at least the tentative agreement uh, had been put to to both sides uh, late last week to end that 13-day strike. Well, late today, in another twist, the union again withdrew that strike notice hours after it was issued. This averts the second strike that would have begun as early as Saturday morning. It still doesn't solve anything, but the strike's not imminent, at least, at least for now. That withdrawal is effective immediately, according to the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada. Uh, That according to a press release. Now, this all comes as... Back in Ottawa, there was there was panic. Well, panic. I, I might be exaggerating, but the prime minister convened a crisis cabinet mi- committee today. They only do that when things are really serious. Obviously, this all in response to the possibility that these workers would go out on strike once again. Uh, there's been lots of pressure on the government to do something, including from Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith, Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe, uh, and today opposition leader Pierre Polyev had this to say: Justin Trudeau must do his job and end this strike immediately because of the massive cost to workers, consumers, and businesses. And we're calling on him to deliver a plan to end this strike within the next 24 hours. So for the time being, no strike, right? At least for now, late last night, uh, Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan tweeting that we have been patient, Canadians have been patient, every effort has been made, but this cannot go on. Uh, We asked for an interview with him today, but uh, that was declined. Uh, The two major ports, of course, are in Vancouver and Prince Rupert. Here is Prince Rupert's Mayor, Herb Pond. He says another wrinkle in this dispute is not what he had been hoping for. 
There are two major arteries that feed the Canadian economy from the West, and it's Prince Rupert and it is Vancouver. And when you choke those off, it won't be long until people feel that impact. And that impact has already been felt. Well, joining me now is someone who knows what it's like to be in the shoes of both cabinet ministers at the centre of this dispute. Lisa Raitt was Minister of Labour under Stephen Harper from 2010 to 2013 and Minister of Transport from 2013 to 2015. Lisa, thank you for your time. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Ben. Good to be here. It was hard to follow the twists and turns of this one today because it just was on and off and on and off. But just your overall reaction to how the Ottawa's handled this one, uh, because it felt like they'd done a relatively good job come Friday, sort of, and all of a sudden it all backfired yesterday. And now where are we? Well, I'm really surprised with how emotional everyone seems to be doing in this. Um, the language that the Minister of Labour is using is not language that I would have ever used in dealing with something like this. The standard language for a Minister of Labour is, look, um, we understand the importance of collective bargaining. The best deal you're going to get is the one that you get at the table yourself. But what we're really concerned about in this country is the impact on the national economy. And as a result, you know, we want to, we, we would, if pushed, we would end up having back-to-work legislation as the final outcome. But to, like today, when, um, when the Canadian Industrial Relations Board released their decision saying mm-hmm. that on a technicality, uh, the workers shouldn't be out on strike because they had to reissue a notice. That's just a little technicality. That's, that's not a big deal. I mean, the minister writes, this strike is illegal. Well, it's not illegal, and that's a really emotional way of putting it. And that just kind of drives the temperature up at the table, which is something you don't want to happen right now, because they do have somewhat of a meeting of the minds on some of the big issues, because, you know, at least the negotiating committee of ILWU said that they would take it back to their leadership. Now, the big step that's missing is that the leadership folks said, well, we're not going to bring this to our people for ratification. It's not good enough. So yep. the rank and file workers have not seen this deal and haven't had a chance to vote on it. So that's that's a I think that's worth noting as well. So it's not like the workers have rejected a deal. It's the leadership has decided it's not good enough to put to the people. So maybe they're going to try to go back to the table now while they they've rescinded their strike notice and work out what needs to happen in order for them to agree to put it to their people. Yeah, it, it feels like it represents a lot of the tone in Ottawa right now, period, right? You're right. I mean, uh, Seamus Regan had, had struck a pretty calm tone for the first 12 or 10 or 11 days of this. And all of a sudden, you're right, today, last night, it was the, the sort of the tweet in, in in poetic form about how we've had enough and so on. Yeah, you, you wonder yeah. exactly what's going on. I mean, I'm sure they're feeling the pressure, right? I mean, I'm sure they thought they had that tentative agreement would be agreed to, and all of a sudden it wasn't. And now they're. Uh, it feels like they're scrambling a bit, to be honest. You know what? I would have felt the pressure a year ago. This yeah. this um, this agreement is so central to Canada's national economy and to Canada's role in the world supply chain. I, I you can't even over uh, over exaggerate how important the port of Vancouver is and how important it is to keep it working so that you don't show your 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 competitors in the world and you don't show the the other countries that ship to you that you're not reliable and that's kind of the message that you're sending right now and you want to do everything you possibly can to ensure that we uphold our reputation on the world stage as being a good partner 
And guess what? Um, here we are in the middle of like this is the worst possible situation, Ben, to have a strike like this during the summer hiatus when nobody's in Ottawa and nobody's really paying attention. And then throw in the fact they want to do a cabinet shuffle at some point in time. I mean, it's a calamity upon a calamity upon a calamity. And honestly, they I wish people were paying attention to this six, eight months ago um, and help them get a deal back then. But the minister only walked in at the very end and uh, tried to do, I think, as much as he possibly could. But by that time, you know, the horse is out of the barn. Yeah, it's not like this snuck up on them. Everyone, they had been negotiating no. since the winter, right? I mean, and, and we know the, the, how vital this one is. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, yes, in hindsight, you're, you've, been in, you've been in those shoes. You know what, you have yeah. to have your eye on the ball, right? You do. And what, I mean, we always knew, and, and the, the members of, of the cabinet and the caucus from BC were always very clear with ministers of labor that this was an incredibly important file to not lose sight of. And the goal was always to never have a work stoppage. And we were successful. We ended up um, helping facilitate a deal between the ILWU and the BCMEA way back in, I guess, when I was Minister of Labor 2012, I want to say. We had a six-year mm-hmm. deal, which was pretty good, uh, actually quite good. And it gave stability. And that's what you want to have when you're trying to run a, a port operation. So um, that was my that was my mandate was to prevent a strike from happening, doing everything you possibly could. And it did it did come down to crisis negotiations, brinksmanship at the very last minute. Uh, but you got a deal. You got a deal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are some pretty important issues on the table here for the union, which is sort of automation and work. I mean, obviously, they've gotten a pretty, it looks like, at least according to the details, they've gotten a pretty significant raise. Uh, but it looks like it's more job security and automation than money on this one. That could be a bit thornier, I think, to try to negotiate between the two sides. But obviously, if, if, you, if you legislate them back to work, you're just delaying the problem, right? This could happen again at some point. One has no doubt. So having them mediate something would be the best, or having them come to, come to a deal. But you're right, it is, it, you know, it looks like a very thorny process. And you know you've been there. I have. And you know what? I have to say that um, the, the union and management have been very, they have looked ahead uh, and, and thought about what automation looks like. And they do have a program in place. They call it M&M. And what it is, if you've right. been there for a certain period of years, if you're found redundant, you, you know, you have a nice payout for you at the end of at the end of six months and and that's good and so they've been thinking about it for a long time my understanding is part of the issue is the expansion of the jurisdiction of the ilw to encompass more than the traditional stevedoring and warehousing and that's where the employers are saying hold up um you know we're not going to go out and train electricians to come in and and work on something within within uh within our buildings uh if it's just clear maintenance we want to be able to hire from the outside so that is a big deal that is something that they are going to have to work out at the bargaining table and the union has to decide if this is something that they want to you know it's a hill they want to die on well lisa raid is with us this half hour a name you'll recognize i should mention uh that she's now managing director and vice chair of global investment banking at cibc capital markets but of course we're speaking to her tonight from her vast experience as both a minister of labor and minister of transport back under stephen harper about 10 years ago now up until 2015 and all this fuss over the bc port strike which 
Uh, started again last night, stopped again this morning, looked like it was going to resume again on Saturday. Now it's not for the time being. I guess we're looking for the two sides to work this out. Meantime, there was a crisis committee meeting today in Ottawa. It feels like the uh, the government's gone from zero to 100 very quickly on this one in terms of its uh, panic level. Um, Lisa, what would you do now? I mean, you mentioned it already earlier that what you wouldn't do is raise the temperature because it feels like maybe yeah. they're not that far apart, right? Yeah, I don't. I think uh, I think it's a clear signal. I would read it as a clear signal from the ILWU that they want to go back to the table. They're saying we're going to put this strike on ice for a little bit. We're not going to go and walk off the job. There's a lot here we can talk to, and maybe we can get to something. Maybe we can tweak a few things so that we have a greater confidence that when we go to the membership, they're going to give it a thumbs up because that's what the union leadership has to be able to figure out. Is this deal good enough? So that all of my members are going to vote in favor of it because having a failed ratification, that's a problem. And I've had that happen in, in a strike where uh, you think you have a deal at the table. Everyone's happy. It goes out to vote and it fails on ratification. And then you really start all over again. Right. So maybe in this case, the fact that uh, union leadership or the caucus, at least of the ILW, didn't bring it to membership might have been in the long run a better thing. Could be. They could have read the tea leaves and said, OK, we we really said we were going to make better strides in this part of the collective agreement. There's an expectation from the membership that we're going to deliver on that. And we better go back to the table and see if we can get something else and try to improve it. It's a negotiation. It makes sense that they would want to go back and negotiate a little bit more. Um, but we'll uh, without without having job action, that's the key so that uh, everyone's going to be a little bit more calm. Right. And I mean, I remember back in 2012, you introduced uh, back-to-work legislation, right? I think in the Air Canada dispute. I mean, it's not an enviable place to be in for a Labour minister, because obviously what you want to do is you want the sides to negotiate and come to their own terms, right? But if you need to, uh, if you need to, get, to get tough, I guess you need to get tough. Well, like I said at the beginning, what it comes down to is that the government is the, the safeguard for the national economy. And every single government that's ever brought in back-to-work legislation, be it liberal or conservative, has always had that as their North Star. What is the impact on the national economy that this particular work stoppage, either in terms of a lockout or a strike, what impact is that having? And you can quantify it, and it has been quantified. And you know how many days is going to be costing how much money, specifically in the B.C. ports, um, the B.C. ports situation. So it's not a difficult, I guess, it's not a difficult case to be made that this is going to have an impact on the national economy and therefore we're going to, you know, put people back to work. Now, the power for the minister and for the government is, if I could put it really bluntly, is, well, who are you going to punish? Because the minister will hold the pen on what they want to accomplish in terms of, of, uh, of what the legislation looks like and whether or not the, they're going to binding arbitration or um, a mediated settlement, or if the government plans on writing terms in of their own. I mean, all those things can happen when you suddenly turn over the deal-making to the government. And that's the one thing that both employees and employers really want to avoid. But you get the sense, uh, going back to where we began, you get the sense from having spent years looking at this issue that that someone took their eye off the prize here. And here we are. Here we are negotiating. Here they are trying to figure this out in the middle of summer uh, with a strike that's already happened for 13 days and could happen again and trying to figure out these quite crucial issues kind of on the fly uh, as we're going and feeling a little bit stuck as far as I can tell. 
I just feel that there there could have been a lot more, I, I would say, outreach to both sides, the BCMA and the ILW, have more meetings with them, understand what their issues are, and, and let them know that the minister is there to help in any way you can and kind of be that honest broker as best you can. You're, you have a great federal service of conciliators and mediators who are there to do their job, but you do have to show that you have care and affection for what's going on and, and that they are negotiating a very important deal for the country actually. And, you know, pay attention to it. To be in a situation where you can't get a meeting with a minister or you're not getting the kind of feedback that you need to get in a negotiation or it's just completely hands off and we're going to let you guys go out into the wilderness and figure this out together alone. I mean, that's a risk. And the risk is a work stoppage. And that's where we are today. And I don't know the details. And I have a lot of respect and time for Minister O'Regan. But the reality is, is that you, you know, you can see this coming from, like I said, 10 miles away. You, the time is, the, the clock is ticking and you know exactly all the steps that are going to have. It's a very well choreographed dance and have it happen at the very last minute that you kind of come in and hope that it all works out. I, I think that was a bit of a danger given the shape of our, of our supply chains in the world. Well, Lisa Raitt, uh, you have a unique perspective on this. Thank you so much for sharing it. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Well, for over the last, you know, I have to admit, over many years, I've worked in a lot of different environments, right? From retail to offices, big newsrooms uh, where there's lots of people to pretty much just me and a few other people in a small bureau somewhere from working in remote places to remote work. And through it all, I've made friends. I think we all make friends at work sometimes, not always. Um, Some have been enduring, most not, right? People you meet at work, you tend to sort of keep in touch a little bit through social media, but maybe you don't see each other the way you do uh, with some friends. Other times you make lifelong friends at work, right? But how important is it to make those connections in the workplace? I've heard people say, I don't make friends at work, right? I don't, I don't let my personal life drift into the workplace because it, it, can be, it can be volatile. Data shows about 30% of North Americans say they have a best friend at work, like a closest friend at work. While the majority of the rest of us say they have regular friends at work, people they spend time with. Maybe they'll go out for lunch or go out for a drink or see each other maybe outside of work hours, obviously. Um, and that makes sense, right? Because you spend an awful lot of time at work. I don't, I don't mean to to hammer this home after work hours while well, I'm still at work. Um, but if you work in a collective setting, you may see those people more than, you know, people who you share your workspace with more than you do many of your loved ones and friends, right? You see a lot of them. So why not try to form some lasting connections if possible? And that became pretty clear at the height of the pandemic when many of us found ourselves working from home. And the people, the friends you'd made while at work, even if you weren't super close, the friends you'd made, those became the people you could probably more easily rely on in a virtual workplace as well. And virtual workplaces have their own challenges. Uh, To talk about this is someone who's really looked into it. Stephen Friedman is an adjunct professor of organizational studies at the Schulich School of Business at York University. And he joins me now. Stephen, thank you. Thanks, Ben. I'm really happy to be here. This is a really exciting thing to talk about. Um, It's gotten a lot of attention and people are really... um, yeah, people are really keen on this topic, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I am too, and I'm sort of wondering why, though. <laughs> yeah, well, so you, you've tapped into something. I, th- I think this is one of those topics that we all know that we uh, that we all think about, but rarely do we talk about it much, right? Because sometimes we like to leave the mm-hmm. workplace at home when we go home. But friendship and 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 um, you know and and closeness to people we work with uh, can be really important. Can be a really important thing. But everyone has different strategies around it. So, what did you dig into, yeah. and what were you hoping to find? Well, I'll tell you, I started out by, um, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot about, hey, man, 
we don't need to, I don't need to be friends with people at work. And so for a long time, when I'm, you know, when I'm teaching executive education, I would hear this all the time. And my response was pretty much always the same, which is, yes, you do. Uh, so I, I thought that it's worthwhile digging into it because most people sort of see the extremes. So they sort of see, you know, hey, I don't like this person. I don't want to be friends with them. All the way to, hey, what are you trying to tell me that, you know, I should be best buddies with everybody at work? And so my thought was, let me see what's out there in terms of the research. Is there something in between that? Is there something in between? Is there a continuum sort of between, you know, my my work spouse, you know, that best buddy at work? The kind that I, I mentioned in the article that I had when I was a kid, you know, I started as friends uh, and moved into that. You know, was there something between that and sort of an acquaintance or someone I really don't care for? And which what's most reasonable and works the best in terms of having the benefits that you get from having a friend at work? Because when one thinks back over careers, especially, I suppose it's it's different if you've worked in one place for a very long time or if you've moved around quite a bit. But one thinks back to those early jobs. You know, I think yours was at a diner. Mine was at a video store. I mean, we made friends close. We, you know, people, we would go out together a lot. You know, they, they were one of the groups of people I spent time with. And you did it without, we were all the same age, right? And it just made right. sense. You did, you did that. Uh, they weren't your only friends, but they were certainly friends that you had. As time goes on, you know, the people you spend time at work with, are some of the people you see the most? I mean, period, right? More than well, more this than, is yeah, more than any of your friends. This is part of the reasoning, and I always thought to myself, it just makes totally logical sense. Like if you look at the numbers, you know, Canadians we're spending between fifty, depending on your job, fifty and seventy percent of the time you're awake in your whole entire existence in the workplace. So the notion that I can go and do that for at least let's just, let's be conservative and say fifty percent of the time I'm going to go to work, and it doesn't matter. If I get on nicely with the folks I work with, just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Well, it doesn't. And, and what's interesting, though, is you've kind of divvied this up. And I think I think this will land with a lot of yeah. people. There are different kinds of friendships at work. You don't necessarily need yes. to. It doesn't have to be sort of, you know, we do everything together, BFF style stuff. But tell right. me about, about how you broke it down. Well, so I started with the the top, which is like your your work best friend or your work spouse. If you've heard that expression, probably some folks have before your work wife, husband, partner, whatever it is. Um, and uh, and so that's sort of the top. And I and I'll tell you that I don't. Number one, I think this one has a lot of risks, and that's why a lot of people get concerned when they hear about friends at work. The risks are, uh, you know, if you get in a big heated debate or a discussion or a conflict which happens between close friends it might spill into work and it might make things awkward for you your friend the organization supervisors people around you etc then i move down from there to what i call the workplace close friendly so it's not really a friend it's a it's a it's friend light yeah. <laughs> a friendly and the friendly is somebody who you are close friends with at work you probably you know uh you you hang out with them and if you left, you'd probably still keep in touch with them a bit. They wouldn't be the same as your best friends or close friends that you had before your job or the friends you have outside of work. Then we move down one, we get to the workplace friendly. So it's a little bit less friendly than the close friendly. And the idea is that this is somebody who it's like um, by convenience. So you work together, you go out for lunch from time to time. You might even spend some time, you know, sort of complaining about, the person in accounting who's annoying or the or the guard at the door or whatever. Um, and you do have some disclosure. You share things with each other. You complain a little bit. You praise a little bit. You talk about your family, the things that are going on in your life, but not to the extent that you would with the ones above 
And likely if you left work, you probably wouldn't stay in touch with them. But while you're at work, it works real well. And then we get to the bottom, which is the person who's just like an acquaintance. I call it sort of like a transactional. So, and this can include both people that you just sort of, hi, how's it going in the elevator? Right. All the way to folks you really don't care for. And as a result of which you purposefully decide, I don't want to be friends with that person. Now, those, those ones aren't great for a lot of reasons. Because you've discussed already why the why the, the workplace best friend can be fraught. Tell me a bit about why the acquaintance can also be a little fraught. Because you've talked a bit about um, purposely avoiding people. Uh, you create a work atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You, you basically sabotage your own work atmosphere, which I think is what you were trying you, to get at. Absolutely. You really do. And we've got some evidence, and there's so much evidence from the science that says that when people don't actively reject being friendly with somebody... Remember, we're not talking about, because that's why I put the hierarchy there. Like, we're not saying friends, we're saying friendly. If you actively reject friendly, um, a few things happen. Number one is you'll like work less. And, when, and we all know when you like work less, your productivity, your, your performance generally can't excel. So that's one thing. The second thing is you're less sort of liking your life, which I'm going to, I mean, I don't have to, we don't have to spell it to anybody why that's not great. The other thing is, is it it attracts attention sometimes. So sometimes people notice and you just become bitter and cynical as a result of which people will judge you negatively. Um, people like, uh, even though we're, you know, myself included, we're not always screamingly warm to everybody. But when we look at other people, we really don't care for in a workplace, people who aren't warm, who don't make an effort to at least be a friendly. You're right. And to navigate all of that, I suppose ultimately what you're looking at is, and this is, you know, this is about having friends and, and being sociable yeah. and and so on. But but you're looking too at, I mean, this is this is a work experience. So part of this is your yes. livelihood. There's a lot at stake here, right? So you're, right. in other words, you're trying to create an atmosphere with which you can you can excel. In other words, or at least give yourself the opportunity to excel by having good social connections or good good personal uh, connections. Yeah, I, I mean, and excel at. And listen, I'm a very realistic guy. I know not everybody wants to, you know, blow up the world, but maybe even if not to excel, then to, I don't know, be your best self, like show the best you can possibly muster up at work. Stephen Friedman is an adjunct professor of organizational studies at the Schulich School of Business at York University. We're talking about friendship in the workplace and how it's beneficial if you do it right. Uh, Stephen, in reading what you were talking, reading your article, one thing that struck me, of course, is one of the big challenges with remote work is that you don't get those chances for those chance encounters. Sometimes your closest friends at work are people you don't even work with. The people you don't work closely with, they're people in other departments because you happen to sort of cross paths and you get along or or they're yeah. just far enough removed from your immediate work life to make it worthwhile. You know, someone you don't have to feel, you don't have to worry about that collapse of the friendship, in other words. Right, right. Well, you know what? That's a really great question. I talk to my clients and my students about this all the time. And, you know, I, I take a page from it. I wish I knew who the author was. At the beginning of the pandemic, I read this wonderful article in I think Fast Company magazine. It was about making friends and, and, and maintaining friendships during the pandemic. And it's kind of like what I call starting a path in the woods. It, you want it to be there, um, but you're used to it just sort of being there when you happen upon it. But I think about it like you got to, if you really want it to work, you got to pound the grass down a little bit yourself first, right? So I think about it this, this exact way. Yes, it is more difficult. More difficult doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means it's more difficult. And you need to have, you need, you need to make more of an effort. I mean, there really is, I would never tell anybody, oh, it's exactly the same because 
things that are different are different, right? So of course it's not going to be the same, but is it doable? Yes. You just have to work a little bit harder at it. And so, you know, I look at any kind of friendship and any kind of close relationship, just falling into it is not a realistic sort of goal. You have to do some work. And so I think during the pandemic and even with, and even now with remote work, I think that with some effort, you can absolutely do it. If we expect it to be exactly the same as the person you pass by in the elevator every day that's in another department, you're not going to get it. But if you do have a relationship with that person, what's to stop you when you're working remotely? Say, hey, man, let's grab a sandwich on Zoom together at lunch. Nothing's stopping you. Is it weird maybe a bit? Sure. It's already weird. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I think that's the aspect of it is is some of the social cues that we would look for if you were, say, in the lunchroom, right? And mm-hmm. you, you sort of got a certain social cue from somebody that, oh, maybe this is someone who wants to chat. You would sort of read those cues. We're sort of texting someone, say, hey, let's have let's let's lunch together over Zoom. You kind of deprive yourself of some of those social cues, so it makes it a little more challenging. But you're right. Ultimately, what you're looking for is to make social connections at work. <laughs> and if yeah, that, for and, sure. And if, if the landscape has changed, so be it. Yeah, listen, I mean, there's no question that it is more difficult and there's no question that you'll miss some of those cues. And I think ultimately one of the reasons people are reluctant is because it has a touch more risk. Um, the less you could read social cues, the more, you know, the more risky we perceive it is. But the same token is we look at other though, and we look at con- some of the sort of uh, contexts out there in the world where we have no social cues and we seem pretty darn brazen um, behind the wheel of a car, um, you know, uh, 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 on the internet by type only. It's like, well, I don't read the social cues, so I can't connect with people, but I'm going to get on the internet and I'm going to tell them what a jerk they are. I mean, that sort of points to the idea that we probably can take some risks, some of the good risks the ones that build some warmth and some friendship at work so that we can make it a little bit, just a little bit more enjoyable. And who doesn't want that? I'm not someone who believes that that work should be this place where we, you know, or it's a, it's a requirement that work set the, you know, set our whole lives on fire and we're passion and floating through the ether. But I mean, it's always better if it's better than if it's not. Yeah. I've always enjoyed being sent on those, on those horrendous team building things and having a friend there that you can laugh at the whole thing over, which is, I suppose, all counterproductive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Me Um, too. And you know, yes, sorry. Those, those things are also a great, and and people ask me about this all the time. Those like sort of outing social events, et cetera, are they the thing that, that enhances this? And they certainly can be. And I think they're wonderful. However, the problem is you say, Hey, everybody, let's go golfing. And there's six people who don't want to golf. Right. Or let's go dancing. The people don't want to dance. So I like, I like more user generated or employee generated ways of socializing, which you can do uh, on the, on uh, virtually as well, you know, games, cahoots, um, things that, that come from not from the leader who says, okay, everyone, we must bowl now. Yes. But instead, something that's generated by the employees. Hey, you know, I really would like, and there's always one who's like, let's do something fun, you know? Oh, and there's, I think always yeah. right? there's always one. So the leader finds that person and it says, hey, man, you know what? Let's, let's, let's uh, put your hat in and let's see what we can come up with. And when you, I, mean, I suppose for people who are a little more, um, uh, introverted or, 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 or a little more standoffish, it's not a, it's not, an absolute necessity to make friends at work. But, I, but what you've dug into, I think, uh, tells an interesting tale about why perhaps you should be open to it, why it's not yeah. a bad thing. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't say, I don't like making friends at work because that's my professional, you know, that's my professional right. MO. Yeah. And you know what, during the pandemic, if there's one thing I've seen, and I'm sure you, you and some of our listeners have seen it as well, is that that sort of thick wall between work and the rest of life is getting more porous 
It's blending, you know, and and the idea that, well, this is work and this is home. It didn't make a lot of sense when you're, you know, doing work from home at 6 a.m. virtually during the pandemic. And so I think some of that is stuck around and, and for good. Um, because I think it might eventually have a whole bunch of ripple effects, both in terms of this stuff and a bunch of other sort of ways of changing how we look at work. And, you know, that's the reason I did all the various levels is for because I recognize that not everybody is extroverted and wants to get out there and jump up and down. But you know what? We can still do things. I've seen stuff like book clubs. I've seen stuff like podcast listening clubs. There's all sorts of people can communicate via writing if they're more shy. There's all sorts of ways to connect today. And I think, you know, quite honestly, I think we got to look to young people as at finding new ways to connect and create relationships that don't have to do with sort of the typical way that somebody my age or or your age. No, I mean, no, no, no offense. I don't, I don't want, want to touch a nerve. Yeah, I don't want to touch worries. a I don't want to touch a nerve there, Ben. We're um, still friends. We're still friends, Stephen. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I mean, there are a host of ways. And so I always, you know, when older people always say, well, how do I connect in a way that isn't in person? I always like to tell them, you know, ask a 25-year-old, they'll show you how to do it. As you've pointed out, Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Ha. Huh. What a quote, right, Bruce Lee? I don't know if you remember that interview back from 1971 with uh, Canadian journalist and historian, author Pierre Burton, uh, perhaps one of Bruce Lee's. I mean, there's many famous quotes, but that is probably one of the most famous ones. Um, I'll be honest, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't a big fan of martial arts movies. And then I was working at a video store when I was in my teens. And someone said to me, you got, you got to watch Bruce Lee movies. They're phenomenal. They're fantastic. Enter the Dragon is one of the best action movies ever made. So, of course... I went home, watched Enter the Dragon, and watched all the rest of them, and have many, many times since. Tomorrow, unbelievably, perhaps, marks 50 years since the death of the martial arts and movie legend um, at, age of, at the age of 32 only from swelling of the brain caused apparently by an allergic reaction to medication, although there's been always been lots of conspiracy theories about uh, Bruce Lee's death. And his death came just days before the release of what would turn out to be his most successful and iconic movie, 1973's Enter the Dragon. Here is one of the most famous scenes from that film. A good fight should be like a small play, but played seriously. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Not thinking, yet not dreaming ready for whatever may come. When the opponent expands, I contract. When he contracts, I expand. And when there is an opportunity, I do not hit. It hits all by itself. Yeah, Bruce Lee is seen there from Enter the Dragon. Now, his film career had begun long before then. In fact, all the way back uh, earlier, he started a movie called The Kid at age 10 in 1950 in Hong Kong. He had been, obviously, Cato in The Green Hornet, for those who remember that. He had been in a movie called Marlowe with James Garner. He had done a whole bunch of stuff, actually. 
over the years. But Enter the Dragon was really the movie that would catapult him into incredible fame. He was voted one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century by Time magazine, invented, developed his own martial art called Jeet Kune Do. So 50 years after his death, there have been a lot of things going on uh, in Hong Kong, obviously, where he spent his childhood. Uh, there's been martial arts workshops this week, as well as exhibitions. And closer to home in Vancouver with an event called The Dragon Story, a celebration of the legendary Bruce Lee at the Chinatown Storytelling Center there. And Wilson Tung is a member of the Chinatown Storytelling Committee and Vancouver Chinatown Foundation's creative advisor. He's a big Bruce Lee fan as well. And he joins me now. Wilson, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Remarkable, I think, 50 years because it feels like all of us who grew up in the 80s or if you grew up in the 90s, it feels like his legend has has always been there. He's it's, he's always been strong, and you see so many movies that look like they were influenced by him. But fifty years—that's it's 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 a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for many of us um, who grew up um, in Hong Kong as well, he was much more than a movie star. And um, I think it's taken all of us to discover the the layers of Bruce Lee that was much um, deeper than just being a action uh, action uh, superstar, right? Yeah, I mean, I think from that clip uh, with the Pierre Burton interview, then that particular clip from Enter the Dragon, you know, he was a very, he was a deeply, he was a deeply thoughtful guy, right? And there was so much more to it. But I don't, I don't think a lot of people recognize that back in the in the early seventies. We've certainly been much more able to recognize it of late. Absolutely, and I think I think um, he did pretty well um, with Pierre Burton, and I think um, you know, for all of us who were uh, fans of this, and you know. Um, losing him a little bit too, too, too young, way too young. Um, you know, we uh, grew up and we started delving into his writings and his philosophies. And, you know, I think the, the admiration for the man and the legend, Bruce Lee, it just kind of grows over time. Yeah. Did you discover him through the movies? I, well, I had to. I grew up in Hong Kong, so <laughs> yeah. he was uh, everywhere. He was everywhere, course, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, when he made it in America, I think that even kind of made him a, a, a much larger life uh, personality than just a run-of-the-mill Hong Kong movie star. Yeah, because, of course, Hong Kong, for listeners who don't know, Hong Kong has a phenomenal movie business and has for a very long time. It has its own system of stars and all kinds of great movies have come out of, out of Hong Kong over the years. Uh, Bruce Lee was just one of many uh, great, great actors or great, uh, great martial artists to come out of that scene as well. His journey was yeah. not a simple one, though. I mean, his journey was not a simple one. He'd had some setbacks in the U.S. Um, he found fame in Hong Kong, but was, you know, had some trouble breaking in in the U.S., but he just kept at it. Yeah, he's um, he was like water, you know. That's why I think that some summed up his life and his philosophy so well. And you know, water never never gives up. It uh, gets everywhere, and it it just keeps on flowing. Um, you know, from a, the smallest stream to the biggest river, and uh, you know, creates ultimately can carve out Grand Canyon. And so I think that was Bruce, and you know, he never gave up. It's interesting to hear him now talk about breaking down barriers, because again, that's something that I don't think was oft talked about when he was at the height of his fame. Uh, but he certainly did break down barriers, and he spoke about it quite honestly as well. Yeah, I mean, he, I think he saw himself as a bridge between, you know, Western culture and Eastern culture. He did a phenomenal job. Um, I, I think he rode a certain wave, you know, in the 70s and uh, when Americans were discovering, you know, Chinese culture in China with um, Nixon and all that. So, uh, But um, I think he definitely was uh, more than just representing the east I, I think he did see himself as a bridge in many ways and what a rare personality to be able to you know be so well spoken both chinese and english and you know he was also funny um he was able to kind of keep you know hollywood entertained so i think he was a such a rare 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 man 
Yeah, how is he seen? I mean, I, I've I've been to. I mean, I've spent time in Hong Kong and in Guangzhou and so on. And and there's still. It feels like the. Uh, I mean, in Hong Kong, he was always popular, but it feels like the, the leg his legacy continues to build. I mean, there's a lot of Bruce Lee stuff out there now. Fifty years later, there's never been another movie star or otherwise that's kind of matched him in terms of his impact. So, you know, uh, of course, there's uh, you know fans and people who grew up with him in Hong Kong and, and in China as well. So, yeah, I, I don't think um, there's anybody else that kind of comes even close to in terms of his impact and his, um, the memory of um, what he achieved uh, will never be forgotten. Yeah. When you look at some of the influence he's had in uh, modern times, I know you've been, you know, there's this exhibit coming up or this, uh, this, this presentation coming up tomorrow, but there's exhibits going on in Hong Kong. I know there's been stuff going on a little bit of everywhere over the last little while but to make the, mark this 50th uh, anniversary of his passing. Uh, but when you look at the influence he had on movies after, I think that was part of it too, that, you know, uh, martial arts movies were quite a, an isolated genre at the time. And then as time has gone on, you see Bruce Lee, you see Bruce, little pieces of Bruce Lee movies all over the place now right yeah i mean he's um you know he grew up in in the movies right he started acting pretty young and um i think he knows how to entertain uh, entertain people very well and i think um you know i think that essence of um um you know what he did definitely was picked up on by you know jet lee and people like um, jackie chan and so on and so forth so i think um the reason that he's able to he he, he found such success was that you know, there was that surface layer that was Bruce the entertainer, Bruce the, the action movie star that knew how to just connect with the common man. And then there was a much deeper layer that, you know, only afterwards that, you know, people discover. So I think he, he, he was a, a rare combination of both. His death at 32, uh, I mean, I think most of us are too young to remember when he when he passed away, we so we got we we grew up with him already gone, um, and there's always been a lot of a lot of talk about what happened to him, right? That continues, doesn't it? Yeah, I remember um, you know my mom and dad um, you know talking about it, and then I think in Hong Kong, the rumor was that um, a disgruntled um, enemy had punched him and disguised himself as a fan and kind of punched him in the stomach, and that's um, that's what happened. But of course later. Um, you know, there were other rumors kind of swirling around. So even to this day, I don't think anybody really knows exactly the truth. Um, but certainly, I think a character uh, of that stature, I think, you know, you're bound to get conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was, I mean, for Hong Kong's film community is also quite small, right? I mean, it's it's quite a little elite group of people who control a lot of it. So there's always rumors going around about, about who crosses who and so on. Yep, yep, and uh, you know Bruce was uh, born from the streets of Hong Kong. It's pretty, he he uh, he was streetwise and street smart, and um, so those rumors in that small community, um, you know, uh, uh, you know many there's many many stories being told, and uh, to this day we 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 still don't know what the truth was. Yeah, tell me a bit about his about his his upbringing because you know he was born in San Francisco, I, I know, but he spent his childhood in Hong Kong, and that's really where. And again, I mentioned earlier he was in a movie called The Kid when he was ten. I mean, he was a lifelong. He was like a child movie star. He was he'd been a star his whole thirty two, almost of his thirty two years. His dad was in the business as well, and so I think he was kind of in some ways born in the business. Um, and um, you know, I. I he was very comfortable in front of camera, but, you know, he he didn't really stop there. Right? And, you know, later on, he really wanted to learn to be a writer as well as a producer and a, even a director. So the years in Hollywood, he, you know, he really endeavored to get beyond just being a movie star. But, yeah, you're right. 
he was very comfortable in front of the camera because he was born into it, right? We're talking Bruce Lee this half hour with Wilson Tung of the uh, Chinatown Storytelling Committee. Um, it is tomorrow marks 50 years since his passing at the age of just 32. Imagine it feels like he did so much because he did. He'd been in movies most of his, his entire life. Uh, Enter the Dragon, perhaps his most famous movie, would come out just six days after he passed away back in 1973. There are anniversary celebration or anniversary markings going on to look back at his legacy, talk about what his impact is today, including one taking place in Vancouver at the Chinatown Storytelling uh, Centre. Um, Wilson, a little bit about that. What's what's going on in Vancouver tomorrow? What can people expect? Well, it's a, um, an honour. We've got the, uh, a director from Hong Kong named Stephen Al. We're going to hear his stories, um, you know, his Bruce Lee stories as well as uh, he's going to bring rarely seen kind of film footage that um, I certainly haven't seen uh, here to Vancouver. And then he's going to bring some personal artifacts that he's collected uh, over the years as well. So it's uh, quite a treat for all of us who, um, you know, who uh, uh, quite a treat for all of us here in Vancouver. Right. I mean, it's not what one thinks about typically when one thinks of sort of uh, storytelling, right? Why, why do you think, why do you think it's important to honor Bruce Lee in this way uh, within that context? Well, you know, it's important. I mean, Storytelling Center is, is named that for a reason. It's not a museum. It, it's really stories, living stories about uh, the community and as well as the individuals in the community. So I think um, to kind of peel back the layers behind this legend, Bruce Lee, and kind of, you know, show, show the man, um, you know, who he was really, uh, who he really was. And, um, you know, he's he wasn't perfect by any means. And I think, um, you know, some of those... Um, his struggles early on and all the all the real stories about who he was. I think that's why it's kind of fitting that we're doing this at the Storytelling Center. It's, it's really getting to the heart of who the man is. Yeah, and, and what does it mean? We talk a lot about these days about representation, seeing oneself on screen, growing up with heroes that you can identify with, you know, looking up on the big screen and seeing somebody who you think you can be like. And maybe we talk about that in ways that are a bit facile, but it, I sense that Bruce Lee had a really big role there, that he was, he was sort of a giant uh, amongst action stars and that he meant a lot to kids who grew up looking up thinking, I can be that. You're exactly right. I, I, I personally don't think putting um, uh, a face that represents who we are, our ethnicity, is enough. And you really need a man like Bruce Lee who not only does he look like us, but he actively tried to bridge between the, you know, the, the cultures, the West and the East, and, you know, as I talked about before. And I think he was much deeper than just, a, you know, an Asian face. And I think he, he, he spent every moment of his life kind of breaking down those stereotypes and those barriers. Um, and it must have been, you know, it's hard now, but imagine what it was like when he was doing it at the forefront of this. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, it, it's I, I, all of us wish he was still around and all of us wish that um, there's another... A uh, role model like Bruce um, that can kind of um, unify as well as, um, you know, uh, inspire us. Yeah, I guess many have followed in his footsteps. I, I suppose when looking, when one looks back at it, people didn't recognize him for all the, all the many things that he was when he was alive, at least not in the West. No, no. And, then, you know, I think it's, um, it took many decades afterwards when I think people kind of went through... Um, not just his movies, but his writings, his his, um, his 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 schools that you know where he taught many many um, kind of students of um, Um I think as the the years grew, I think the the, the real um, 
size of his impact and the size of his teachings really kind of dawned on on people. But definitely, it took quite a long time for 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 the the world to discover the, those other activities of um, Bruce. So Wilson is always the million dollar question. You must have a favorite a favorite Bruce Lee movie. Well, I'm kind of partial to Game of Death. I Game think of it's, uh, it's kind of a perfect action movie. Uh, it's kind of nice and simple, and it's kind of I, I come from video games, so it's it's almost like the perfect setup for a video game as well. So, yeah, I I, uh, I love that movie. Yeah, Mortal Kombat feels like it was taken right out of that one, doesn't it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah. I've never seen The Orphan, which I hear is a really good film. That's a movie he made back, sort of a Rebel Without a Cause movie when he made, I guess, in his late teens back in Hong Kong in 1960. I guess he must have been about 20 at that point. But that's apparently a really good one as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I did not see it when it was in the theater, but um, I think certainly um, it, it's, it kind of showed the breadth of who he was as, as an actor, you know, definitely way more than just a, an action, you know, Kung Fu star. And, uh, you know, when I compared him to some of the, 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 the decades of action stars that's coming on, I don't think anybody kind of stands up to Bruce in terms of his kind of his talents, his, the breadth of his, um, you know, his art and his, um, you know, um, and how he trained his body as well. So it's just, it's just phenomenal to, to be able to be here to celebrate, um, you know, this, 50th anniversary tomorrow um, and to hear some more stories. Yeah, uh, Wilson, uh, thank you so much. Uh, my, mine would be Enter the, I have to say, Enter the Dragon blew me away when I saw it for the first time. I thought, how did I not see this? I felt like I'd wasted ten, five, eight, ten, five, ten years of my life by not seeing it when I was younger. Did you uh, did you try to use the nunchuck and you hit yourself on the head? God, God, no! <laughs> no. <laughs> like we all did. Uh, like we all did. No, I, I, I never. I like. We I think I was did. in my mid-teens, so I was just old enough to think. I, I, I that look. That is a. That looks like something that'll be that could be potentially dangerous. Yeah. I've, I've, I've got so many friends who try to make nunchucks, and it did not end well. I got to tell you. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he made it look so simple, right? I mean, that was his genius. He, he made it all look so easy. He yeah. did. He did. He did. Well, good luck with the uh, good luck with the event tomorrow, Wilson. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Blockbusters for me were always a big summer event. You know, I. It seemed to me we looked forward to them for a long time. There wasn't that much else to see. TV was in rerun seasons. You didn't have that much sports on television. So summer blockbusters were really the visual event of any year. So, you know, from Jaws in 75, Star Wars in 77, E.T. in 82, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, many different times, Back to the Future, Aliens, Stand by Me, Men in Black, the list goes on and on and on. Um, but it's been a bit, a bit of a tougher time for the blockbuster of late. Now, there's a lot more going on out there, right? So people don't have the same focus on the summer blockbusters as they used to. But the Indiana Jones movie, the fifth one, doesn't seem to have done as well as, as they had hoped, uh, despite its $300 million budget. And altogether, ticket sales in the U.S. and Canada for the year to date are about $5 billion. And that's down about 20% from the same period back in 2019, which is really what they're trying to get back to. So Hope is riding very high that two very different movies that both hit screens tomorrow uh, are going to change Hollywood's fortunes. One of them, of course, is Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie starring Margot Robbie and Canadian Ryan Gosling as Ken. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and planned choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights. Diamonds under my eyes. It's 
the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? <laughs> quite the trailer. I've only seen it 300 times already. Uh, the other one, of course, is from Academy Award winner Christopher Nolan. It's called Oppenheimer with lots of big names. Uh, Killian Murphy, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., and more. The story, of course, of the father of the atomic bomb. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. There we go, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Now, the two films have been kind of pitted against each other in some sort of box office rivalry, just rivalry despite how different they are. But the real result is that it sparked broader interest in both releases, the so-called Barbaheimer effect. And it's the box office that could win here. So Barbie versus the bomb maker, is it a formula for box office success on both sides? Joining me now is Walter Chow. He's a film writer and movie critic uh, with Film Freak Central. He also contributes to LA Weekly, The New York Times, and others. Uh, Walter, thanks so much. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Ben. This is a big, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this, but I buy into the hype, right? So Sky Expectations, uh, this whole sort of false competition that they built between these two very different movies, uh, but it's summer and they're blockbusters. Uh, what do you make of it? Feels like feels like there's a lot riding on this. You know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's all pointing to positive, right? If we can get people back in the theaters that's positive for a whole industry it's positive for uh the filmmakers it's positive for the moviegoers and the vendors it's positive all the way around and i think it's also positive because of exactly what you describe if they're going back to the theaters to see things that are not these superhero movies that are cranked out it feels like every 10 minutes you have a new one and then you have to do all the homework with watching the tv shows and it becomes this really insular exhausting soap opera to, to try to follow all, all, all of these terrible identical feeling movies if we're going back to the theaters because of a of a brilliantly animated film like the spider-man across the spider-verse movie or if we're going back to the theaters because of you know a great little horror film or 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 mission impossible 7 where tom cruise you know does his own stunts if we're going back for things that are very interesting and different like barbie and Oppenheimer, whose idea of a blockbuster that everyone's excited for is this biopic of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's really weird, but I think it speaks to a real hunger among the movie-going audience for something different and, and something good. You know, not just different, but something that's actually good. You can only take your audience for granted for so long before they uh, figure everything out. They're not quite as dumb as you think they are. Yeah, is is that has that been part of the problem here? Because I, I know there's been a lot of hand wringing over the fact that uh, moviegoers haven't really flocked back to theaters uh, post pandemic. That sales are still down compared to 2019. Is part of the problem that there just hasn't been much worth going to see? I mean, there's been a lot of good movies out there, but nothing that you really really felt like you had to go to the cinema to see. Like it, it hadn't become an event again. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of problems, you know, that 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 we, that, that we can point to, and you know, mo- most of it having to do with how big a swing uh, the studios are taking all of the time when they're talking about making blockbuster movies. I think there was a time a studio slate for the year they would have 
you know, eight or nine mid-budget to low-budget pictures that they take a chance on, and then they'd have one or two giant movies that they'd invest a lot of money in to to uh, release. But now they've sort of gotten rid of all the middle and lower tier movies, and they're putting all of their chips on one or two movies a year uh, that cost three hundred million dollars, like the last Indiana Jones movie. And no matter how much really that movie does, you know, uh, unless it breaks through as one of the all-time top-grossing movies of all time, it'll never make its money back. But, you know, it, it costs $300 million to make. It costs another $200 million to market. How much money do you have to make at this point, you know, given the percentages that ex- exhibition has to, you know, take from the pie as well? How much do you actually have to make off of Indiana Jones, uh, number five, I guess it is, uh, before it even breaks even? The the risks are so high. And there's so much money being invested in these all of the investors who are by and large not artists, you know, the people investing in this are corporations who hire people like Bob Iger and David Zaslav and, and say, you know, you guys are not artists either. What you are are businessmen. So how do you give me back a, a sure thing return on my investment? Well, the only sure thing that they've ever really figured out, it's not even a sure thing is, is, well, let's make it something that people are familiar with already. Let's give them Superman nine yeah. and Batman 12. And, you know, it, it's, it's, a, a lack of imagination and a lack of daring. So you never will, will hit it big. And I think audiences are, are kind of figuring that out now. You know, they're saying, if I go to Marvel movie 47, it's going to be exactly the same as the last 20 of them because they're afraid to take risks. There's too much money involved. Yeah. And, and Barbie might strike you as, as right in that wheelhouse. And yet given that Greta Gerwig has has directed it, that Noah Baumbach has written it with her, uh, this is not what might, you know, this is not what might one might expect, I gather, um, from a movie based on a popular, if controversial, toy. Yeah, you know, fingers crossed. We don't really know. And, and you know, Hasbro, the toy-making company, has a whole slate now of movies. There's like, I think, 40-some movies in the pipeline for them where they're going to adapt every single one of their toys into a feature length movie. But <laughs> you, you do see some of this bet hedging now where they're saying, even Marvel was doing it for a while with people like Chloe Zhao and saying, we're going to invite someone with credibility, with artistic credibility to helm one of these pictures. Now, the real challenge is can the producers and the company, the corporations, the, you know, the AIs essentially, can they resist giving notes? Can they resist saying, oh, you can't really go there. You can't really kill that person or you can't really talk about these issues. Can they resist giving notes and really let these artists be artists rather than just hired names that they put on a marquee? You know, the truth will be in the product, right? We'll we'll, we'll look at Barbie and we'll say, was Greta Gerwig allowed, Noah Baumbach, were they allowed to be Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach? Were they allowed to be irreverent about Barbie? Were they allowed to be uh, maybe even hostile towards some elements of, of the Barbie mystique? Were they really allowed to be who they were to, 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 to let their uh, freak flag fly, I guess? You know, because really quickly, if they're not, I think audiences will figure it out. They'll say, you know, it doesn't matter who's directing it. Really, who's in control of it is Mattel. Yeah, it, it cannot seem, it cannot, and, and, and there's already some hints in, in the marketing, the huge marketing campaign for Barbie in particular, that there might they might be drifting into that. I mean, you don't want to sit there thinking you're being sold a product, right? Therein lies the problem for for a general audience. I mean, for some, it's fine. Uh, you know, kids will like it, or I guess. But but for yeah. for most filmgoers, you don't want to be sit there thinking you're watching a two hour infomercial. 
Well, that, that's exactly right. I think, you know, the movie going experience is difficult enough with all the commercials and all the trailers and all the things that are happening, the people on their phones for the, for, for the entirety of it. There's, you really have to present something that's novel and valuable, it, it, you know, in exchange for people's time right now, you know, Ben, you can open up your, your browser or your phone and you can watch anything that you want to almost anything that was ever created, you know, in a video format, you can watch it. It's completely a la carte. So what will be drawing us to these big event films? It has to be something novel, something like Mission Impossible, for instance, that just doesn't translate the same way in a smaller screen and benefits from a communal experience. I think horror movies are the prime example of, of a pandemic-proof genre it, it, because people love to go and sit in a dark place with strangers and scream and yell and holler at, you know, really cathartic horror movie. That's really fun. And you can't really replicate that at home. And so what are people doing in terms of making art, making something that we want to share collectively? Uh, you know, and it looks like right now it's Barbie and Oppenheimer. And yeah, you know, far be it for me to look a gift horse, right? You know, whatever, whatever is drawing them, let's do it. Walter Chow is a film writer and movie critic with Film Freak Central. We're talking about uh, a big, a much anticipated day in the movie business tomorrow. The releases of Oppenheimer and Barbie at the same time. They could be on just about every screen you can imagine right across the country if you combine the two of them. Walter, when you look at the, what's riding on these, what's been interesting is the idea that these are frenemies. They're not really, I mean, these movies will probably attract very different audiences, uh, but all, you know, the, the whole publicity push to, push to try and make them somehow competitive going head to head has been interesting because I gather really what they're trying to do is create some of that old fashioned buzz, the kind of thing we saw back in 2008 when Dark Night and Mamma Mia came out at the same time, two films that probably attracted different audiences as well. Uh, but, but there's a lot riding on this, too, because we've had some disappointments. You talked about Indiana Jones already. I gather Mission Impossible didn't do quite as well as they had hoped. Like, there's there's been some disappointments already this year. Yeah, I think the biggest one was The Flash, right? right. The, the, yes. The, you know, I don't even remember The Flash, so that's <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, lucky for you. And, and But but it's... Uh, you know, and that, that that's sort of the, the movie that Zaslav, the head of uh, HBO and Warner, um, and, and uh, you know, said that was the greatest superhero ma- uh, movie of all time. And they put all their chips, you know, Warner Brothers really uh, put all their eggs in this basket, in the Flash basket. It came out and it's it opened the worst of any, you know, uh, superhero movie has ever opened. It was super expensive. It's shrouded in controversy. Uh, you know, it's, it's the 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 star of it, Ezra Miller, uh, didn't do anything good for, for 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 the reputation of the film before it came out. Um, it's just did you see it's it? The disaster. It's 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 a career-ending disaster. For did a you lot see it, Walter? Oh yeah, I understand. I, 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 I haven't seen it. How bad was it? Oh, it's 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 awful. It, <laughs> it, it is awful. I mean, the, the, there are moments that are kind of okay, I guess, but what it really shows is a lack of one authorial voice. It, it ground through writers, it ground through directors, and really the voice of it is a boardroom of of rich people who yeah. uh, sit around and say, well, we need this, and we need this, and we need a return on this, and so let's resurrect the corpse of Christopher Reeve and then put him on, you know, this phantom body, and this, it's Yikes. gross, and yeah. it's weird. Yeah, and I didn't mind. Uh, you know, I didn't mind the Indiana Jones movie, but it because I, you know, I grew up in the, you know, I was a kid in the, in the early '80s yeah, when so, that first yeah, one so. came out. So I have legacy, legacy love for Indiana Jones. But even the new one felt a little bit boardroom, right? It felt like it'd been written by committee. Absolutely, because there's so much fear involved in it. You, you look at Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom is 
completely lawless. You know, the the sequel to one of the biggest movies of all time is one of the most appalling mainstream movies ever made in terms of content. I I, I love it in a way that, you know, I would never recommend it to anybody. Well, you couldn't make it today. No, no, man, forget about it. Because, you know, just uh, everything feels very safe now and feels very like, you know, attempting to please everyone. And there's that old maxim, right, Ben, that if you try to please everyone, you please no one. That's really what we're getting with a lot of these big, too big to fail kind of movies. These studios are terrified. You know, we can't do this and we can't do this. We have to be very careful here. Let's write this here and let's make everything very easy to understand so we don't offend the easily confused. You know, every demographic is, is they're trying to please every possible audience. And in doing that, they please no audience yeah. for it. Part of that is that international need to, to market it around the world too, where you know you, you you can't be you're trying to market a movie to as many people as possible, so it becomes as simple as possible, right? Because you need to appeal to audience that may not have the context, may not have the historical context of certain movies, for instance. But it feels like in this case, at least, both Barbie and Oppenheimer are are slightly are, are risks for, by both by both in both cases that these are not these are not. I mean, Barbie maybe a little bit less, but these are still risks in doing something that has not been. Done before. These are not sequels. You know, these are familiar, yeah. perhaps familiar names or familiar stories. But how they're handled and how they're taken may 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 show a little bit of risk taking. Maybe we'll see. It's hard to think of Barbie as being a risk taker, but or a risk taking movie. <laughs> but still, well, I mean, it's you're right. It's extremely risky, and I, I I honestly I don't know who the audiences are for either of these movies. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I know there's there's legions of Barbie fans and collectors and and, and kids who grew up playing with the the toy. I get that. Beyond that, I don't understand what possible crossover value there could be unless there, there there's not a wide overlap with Greta Gerwig fans or something. I, you know, I don't get it. I also don't understand. I don't know who this is for. Right. So. When you say gamble, it's a huge gamble, and people are really excited. It seems like about both of these movies in my little bubble, but I don't know if that bubble is real, <laughs> man. You know, I don't know what's going to happen after the first weekend. I don't know what's going to happen after the first week after all of the people that I I kind of interact with, you know, casually online after they see it and they're all excited. Who else is going to see it? And I think that's really the test, you know, to say, okay, is there actually an audience for these things? Will all the people complaining about how everything's the same and everything's you know been done a hundred times, will those people put their money where their mouth is and go out and support something strange, even if they don't understand what the appeal might be on the surface to them individually? Will people support things that aren't familiar to them? The, sta- the staying power is the big, you think back to those blockbusters of, of many years past, those summer mm-hmm. blockbusters of yore, and they had staying power. They would be they would be hits all summer long. And one wonders whether Barbie and Oppenheimer, depending on the reviews, the reviews have been good so far for both films. Yeah. Uh, well, but, but you, well, you wonder you wonder how much staying power both these films will have if audiences are a little lukewarm to them. That's exactly right. And the thing, too, is that the, the climate now is very different than it used to be. You know, when I was a kid, I watched Grease two years after it was released at the drive-in. You know, I, I was a kid myself. But, you know, there was a time that movies had time to breathe. They had time to spend eight months finding its audience. It would travel the country in a slow rollout. Now these movies, bam, they're released on 3,000, 4,000 screens. They have one weekend. They have essentially have eight days to demonstrate that they stay in power or they start to lose screens for the next big thing. Yeah, and we'll find out starting uh, tomorrow night. Walter, thank you so much. Ben, thank you for having me. 
The list of great Irish authors is a long one. There are the legends, the James Joyce's, the Oscar Wilde's, the Samuel Beckett's, and so on, the Brendan Behan's. To the more contemporary writers, Ed O'Brien, Roddy Doyle, if you've ever read The Commitments, uh, Maeve Binchy, who's, you know, been written a ton of books, uh, Circle of Friends, maybe the movie that was a big one, Colm Toybean, who's written a ton of stuff, including Brooklyn, which you may have seen as well. And there is a newer batch of really fine Irish authors, including Sally Rooney, uh, Tana French, Emma Donahue, who wrote Room, and my next guest, Liz Nugent, believe it or not, released her first novel, her first ever novel in her early 40s. It was 2014's winner of the Irish Book Awards crime novel of the year called Unraveling Oliver. She'd done all kinds of stuff before then, including working as a tour manager on Riverdance that took her all over the world. She followed it up with four more novels, and her latest was released in Canada just yesterday. It's a great book. I read it. Uh, I mean, I do do a lot of reading for this show, obviously, and not always do I actually read every single page of the book, and I certainly did it with this one. It is called Strange Sally Diamond. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a complex book. I don't want to give away too much of it. It's a multi-layered tale that focuses on Sally, needless to say, um, who is a recluse, social, incredibly socially awkward, and we begin to learn why. And it dates back to something that happened to her in early childhood. And as the book goes through, we start to unravel uh, the horrors of what had happened to her. This all begins when her adoptive father dies, leaving her on her own to sort of start exploring what her past was like and why she has these memories of her past. But it is one of those stories that you peel away as you go through each and every chapter. Um, it is gripping. It can be grim. There's a lot of humor in it, as one might expect from a great Irish book. Um, and a lot of unique insight, of course, from Sally herself. All of it from the pen of a writer who often claims that, honestly, she'd rather be doing anything else than writing, like scrubbing shower tiles and so on. Because writing for her is – the finished product is unbelievable, but these books are a journey for her. And she doesn't have it all mapped out. She just sits down with a great line, a great idea, and she goes. And, of course, that can be a tall – a really tall order. Uh, Liz Nugent is the name of the author. Uh, the book is called Strange Sally Diamond, and she joins me now. Liz, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, congratulations on the new book. I, it's, I mean, it, it's. I, I realized that um, you know you sat down to write this a while back, but it was released in Canada yesterday. I was reading an interesting article that you wrote actually about the process of writing. You love having written, but you find the writing more uh, more laborious. Yeah, I, you know, I'm one of those writers who hates writing. And that's a, that's a Dorothy Parker quote, actually. I think she said, uh, I, I hate writing, but I love having written. And uh, that, that would describe my process as well. I will do anything to avoid writing. Um, my cleaner berated me the other day, you know, for um, leaving her with nothing to do. <laughs> because <laughs> I cleaned the house rather than sit at the laptop. But uh, it pays the bills. And hey, I got to pay the bills. You must enjoy it, too. I mean, it always reminds me of songwriters. You hear, you know, Sting say, oh, yeah, I wrote uh, Every Breath You Take on the Back of a Napkin in Six Minutes, right? And I've interviewed authors who say, oh, yeah, just, you know, it was there to be written. I just had to sit down and I let know. it flow. <laughs> so, Those writers who say, oh, it wrote itself, I hate them. <laughs> it's rare, though. You know, most authors, when you speak to them, will say, no, it's it's painstaking, all of it, especially after you've written maybe the first one. You know, it's it, it's yeah. it's a combination of many many different stories you may have thought of over time, but coming up with new stories as time goes on, it becomes more of a difficult, more of a process. 
Yeah, no, joking aside, it it does get a heart, like you do get into the rhythm of writing and it's not, it's not all hell because I write first person narratives when I get into the side, inside the head of the character I'm writing, I can easily lose myself. Yeah. And there are many characters, uh, to get into in in this latest book, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. What I was I was interested to know for all those aspiring writers out there who think, oh, you know, I had I, unlike many or some, I didn't write my first bestseller at you know you know Eleanor Catton, for instance. I didn't write my bestseller at twenty six. I'm done. You took to writing later. Yeah, I was. I think I was forty five when my first novel was published, and I'm fifty five now. So no, I was forty six when I was first published. Wow. And I'm fifty five now, and um, yeah, five books under my belt in in ten years. So much has happened, and my life has changed so utterly uh, in the last ten years. I'm really, really grateful for the, for the opportunity to to do this work. What made you decide? I mean, had you always been a writer? Yeah, I, I was working on a TV soap opera at the time and I was working on the administration side and I was just so frustrated because I had so many ideas for the characters, but I was never allowed to even submit the ideas, which was even more frustrating because it wasn't my job. I was a, I was a staff member and you had to be a contracted writer to actually contribute storylines to the soap. So um I I just started writing for myself in the end. Like the, the creativity was inside me and I had to let it out. So I ended up writing on my own time, you know, on holidays, weekends, whatever. And it took me about six years before I had a, a first novel together. But um, I really wrote it to get out of that job. That's a good <laughs> way. Of, it's amazing. You know, you would think how much more successful would some would some creative processes be if they brought everyone in, right? If they just brought everyone in? Sure. Yeah. I think of all those people, you know, people who are cleaning the floors of offices who should be running the companies. <laughs> There's <laughs> quite a few of them who would do a better job. Were you uh, unraveling Oliver did did really well? What was it like to sort of take that plunge and 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 put put your writing out there for all to see? Well, it was just it was just really gratifying that it it caught fire so quickly. I think, you know, it entered the charts six or seven weeks after it was published. And then, you know, it slowly rose up the charts and about, you know, maybe 12 weeks after it was published, it got to number one. I couldn't believe it. I was really shocked because I just thought I would write one book and well, part I had kind of two two sides, but one part of me thought I'm going to write one book like Harper Lee and then I'm going to go into hiding for the rest of my life. The realistic side of me thought I will write one book, I'll maybe um, make enough money to take a couple of months off work and then uh, I'll go back to my job. That'll be it. But um, no, like to my shock, my publishers asked me to write another book. <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. I really just thought I'm a one book because I thought I'd used up all my ideas in the first book. I didn't think I had anything left in me to write another book. But lo and behold, five books later. Yeah, the, clearly the well was was deep. Uh, you must have quit the admit. I, I suspect you quit the admit job pretty quick. Oh, yeah. I, I, in fact, I quit it before the book came out. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't take such a huge leap. I took a two-year leave of absence. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then I never went back. You never went back. They must have been impressed uh, with, with, with the success. Those who, I mean, I, I gather you'd worked as a stage manager for Riverdance as well. So you sort of, sure, yeah, you sort I, of went around the world. Do you find, I mean, that, all that experience must have 
helped. I mean, it helps to see other things. I can't imagine sort of sitting down at, at, at sort of 2021 20, and just relying on your imagination to come up with stories. I know it's done, but to have seen with so much must help when it comes to developing plot lines and so on. Yeah, I have had so many careers um, before I worked on the soap opera. I worked on, I worked as a jury selector for the really? IFTA Awards, which are mm-hmm. you know the Irish equivalent of the Oscars. So I would select the juries for for those, and I worked, as you say, as a stage manager um, on lots of shows. But the biggest one was Riverdance, and I toured all over the world with that. Very much backstage, I'm, I cannot dance to save my life. And before that, I worked in a social welfare office in London, in England. And before that, I worked in the state agent's office. I had many, many careers before I actually realized at the age of 46 what I wanted to be when I grew up. Liz Nugent, the author, is with us this half hour. Uh, her latest book is called Strange Sally Diamond. It was released in Canada by Simon & Schuster yesterday. One of the difficulties with reading this book and then speaking to you is you don't want to give away too much. But this book peels like an onion, right? It really does. There's so much in there. But tell me a bit about Sally, because she's the protagonist in all this. Uh, she's a recluse, very much different from you, I gather, when you're writing a book, you like to get out there and talk to people. And uh, <laughs> But where did the inspiration for for Sally come from? Part of it was conversations I had with my husband about, you know, what we wanted to do, what what, what our, our our last wishes would be about what we wanted to happen to us after we were dead, like where we want to be buried, you know, where we wanted our ashes scattered. As and one I does. Yes, as one does. Yes. story, because the, it's not a spoiler to say in the opening chapter, Sally puts her dead father out with the bins, out with the trash. Because According to his wishes, he, right? Yeah, according. No, he's joking. He said that, but she took him seriously. Uh, and the other inspiration, a character called Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, of course. who was famously in the book, a recluse who had a, a fondness for the local children. He would hide little treats in, in a tree stump for them. I, I was always kind of fascinated by him. And actually, when I went back to, to read the book after I had written Sally Diamond, I realised that it, the reason given for him being a recluse was that he had stabbed his father in the leg as a boy and was never allowed out of the house. But even after his father died, he still stayed home. And I thought that was very interesting. So that was kind of the kickoff for Sally's seclusion, I suppose, was, you know, what kind of person is a recluse and why would you be a recluse? And then I decided I would have to give her a very, very traumatic, dark, disturbing background. Yes, it's interesting because I, I guess if you look back at, I mean, for 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 its time, Boo Radley was quite the character. But I suppose there was many questions left unanswered by Harper Lee about about Boo Radley, sure. and some of those are are sort of explored in 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 Sally. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I, you find out exactly why Sally is the way she is. I mean, she is somebody who pretends to be deaf in order in order to avoid conversation, to avoid interaction. But, you know, there are some similarities between us. She hates large shopping malls, <laughs> <laughs> which I, uh, yeah, that would bring on a panic attack in me. She, you know, she's not really somebody for small talk. She puts her foot in it all the time. I do that too. I, you know, I'm constantly saying the wrong thing or, 
you know, congrat, you know, I three times I've congratulated non-pregnant people on being pregnant. You know, it's the most unforgivable, unforgivable. And I don't seem to learn. I don't ever seem to learn. It's happened three times. And, you know, I, I keep saying to myself, just don't, don't say anything. Don't say, don't anything, say, anything. Don't say anything. And yeah. then it just comes out. It just comes out. <laughs> Terrible. It's interesting, too, that within the um, I mean, she lives in a small town in Ireland where she's been brought essentially by her by her. I mean, I won't give away too much by by her, her her adoptive parents. I'll put it that way. I mean, she speaks truth to power, too, doesn't she, Sally? I mean, Sally says the wrong thing sometimes, but there are certain parts of the book where she says exactly the right thing, given well, the you know, political circumstances and so on that we live in these days. Sure. Well, that's one thing I really like about Sally is that she says the things that you know, she's very straightforward. Everything is black and white for her. So she speaks to children the same way she speaks to adults. She doesn't see the difference between a high class person or a low class person. She doesn't see difference. She just sees people. So she treats everybody the same, which is, you know, what we should all aspire to. That We should all treat people the same. But so, you know, she's really lovable in that way, you know, that she is really straightforward. But, you know, she has her bad points as well. She's prone to kind of violent outbursts. But, you know, when you find out what's happened to her, you will appreciate why. And, you know, I think she's a very sympathetic character, despite her flaws. And I think people will really enjoy going on that journey with her to discover her past as grim as it might be. What's great about it is because the book in itself is is there are parts of it. I mean, the the, the background story again, not to give too much away, is is very heavy, and can be mm-hmm. quite brutal. And yet she's able to because of her character, she's able to interject the humor into it that you kind of need to make a book like that. I think work. Yeah, I mean, it go it goes to very dark places, but it's it's sort of balanced out by the by the humor. You know, every time there's something really dark, I can make something funny or amusing happen alongside that, so that you're not dwelling in the darkness for too long. And you know, there there is a a room where really bad things happen, but I never go into that room. I stay away from the graphic side of the abuse that is suffered by certain characters. There's no gore. There's no graphic abuse. It's it's as humane as I can make it. We're in the survivor's head, but the survivor who has no memory of the abuse. Liz Nugent is the author of Strange Sally Diamond. It's her fifth book, uh, the Irish author's fifth book. It's out uh, yesterday in Canada, published by Simon & Schuster. It tells the tale of Strange Sally Diamond, who is a, um, a woman in her early 40s, living in a small town in Ireland. She's a recluse. And the book essentially peels away the layers as to why that is and goes into, it tells tells quite the tale. When you wrapped it up, I mean, as I finished the book uh, early this morning, as, as one is wont to do, it's a real page turner, by the way. And I, and and that's, you know, is it a book about looking for answers? Is that, is that and, and then finding them and not always being the right thing? I mean, it was, it was I, yeah, I don't want to encapsulate your, your work, but in that sense, it was sure. it was really interesting that way? Well, I think, you know, life isn't fair. And I had to reflect that in the book in some ways, like there, there's a, a hopeful ending for one character and a really, you know, terrifying ending for another character. But I think I have to reflect reality rather than tie things up in a neat bow. So yeah, I think that's why I ended it on those notes. Yeah. I did my best. <laughs> yes, be no, no. Faithful it, it, to the characters, I suppose, really. You know, I, it wouldn't be true of Sally for everything to be fine and 
So I think I've given away a bit there. But, no, it, well, well, a little, well, 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 I mean, it's still the story is so multi layered that that I, that, that yeah. it's hard. It's hard to There's you don't want to give away much. There is a lot going on. Did did does, do the endings? Do you know where you're going when you begin, or do the characters take you there? Oh, I haven't a clue. I mean, I make it up as I go along. I, none of it is plotted. I mean, um, there's another character, a secondary character, who becomes uh, more prominent as the book goes on, and he only arrived as I was writing it. I just kind of no. thought I got to a point, and I realized I need to, you know, I need to, you know, pick up the pace here. I need something to happen. So I added in this secondary character who became so integral to the story because he knows more about Sally's past than she does herself. So it was really interesting to write from his perspective, having kind of grown up in the same milieu, if you like, and having an entirely different experience. And also, interestingly, because the book was written during COVID and Mm -hmm. Ireland had the longest lockdowns in the world, the social isolation aspect of the book is extreme for both characters. They are both extremely socially isolated um, up to a point with Sally, but almost entirely for Peter. Um, and that that came out of just the world I was living in at the time. Yeah. And, and you reflect a little bit of, a bit of it at the end. I mean, right near the end of the book, COVID arrives in Ireland, and you get a yeah. sense of what's coming. And it's interesting that, that all that isolation predates it, in the book at yeah. least. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, whatever's going on in the world, even in my previous books, whatever's going on in the world plays into the writing. It subconsciously just works its way through your fingers onto the laptop and ends up on the page. You don't plan these things. They just emerge. I, I I would suspect that once it was done, you enjoyed you enjoyed having written it. I'm not sure how how much you liked writing it, but I'm sure you enjoyed having written it because it is you must be happy with the outcome. I'm absolutely blown away. I mean, the 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 kind of endorsements I've got from writers I admire from all over the world, um, including your wonderful Shari Lapena, mm-hmm. um, uh, I have just blown me away. Um, the support I have from other writers for this book is just extraordinary, really extraordinary. I'm so grateful to them. Yeah, and and you're, you've started on the next one. I mean, last I read, you'd sort of you're at page your word thirteen. I think was the last time. Yeah. But you were off to a place, and I this is a very quick story. Back in '95, I went to Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland with my mum, and we wound up at a place called the Tyrone Guthrie Centre. She knew of it. It's kind of out of the way. It's a writers' retreat, and it's quite a successful one. Lots of great writers have been there, and that's where you do some of your great writing. Uh, tell me a bit about the idea of needing to kind of um, put your head down and 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 write and not sort yeah. of have all the distractions that you seem yeah. to be easily, like all of us, easily succumb to. Uh, the beauty of the Tyrone Guthrie Centre, and people can go from all over the world. I mean, if you just Google Tyrone Guthrie Centre, you'll, you'll find all the details. So, you know, writers or artists, I think you have to be published. You know, it can be writers, artists, um, dancers, poets, actors, any any person who works in the broader arts can apply to go there. And um, once you're there, you get a beautiful room, usually overlooking a lake, and you get all your meals served up to you and you 
don't have to do anything except work. So you're not looking at the pile of ironing in the corner. You're not taking your elderly mother to her medical appointments. You don't have to worry about the kids, you know, rugby kits. You know, it's all you do is work. So it's a real privilege and an honor to be there. And I think I feel that when I'm there, you know, and I feel that, God, I've got this, I'm so lucky to be in this space because it's subsidized by the state, like it's um, funded by the Arts Council of Ireland and the Arts Council of Northern Ireland was one of these cross-border initiatives. Uh, It's been open since 1981. So it's, it's just a really important place for a lot of writers and a lot of artists. And I think so many of us would be grateful to the Tyrone Guthrie Centre for being able to continue our careers. I mean, it must be both great and and also uh, somewhat surreal to find yourself walking in the same footsteps as many people who you've probably read over the years or people other people have read, whether it be, you know, the Colm Toybeans or the Sally Roonies or whomever, but or the Tanner Frenches. But here you are. Here you are. Yeah. And, and here you are after starting starting writing in your 40s. It, it, is, a, it is a great story. It is a great story. What next then? <laughs> Without giving it away too much, have you sort of figured out you, you're just going to, when you start the right, you just go on that journey, you just sort of start with an yeah. idea and a character and then you go out for that wander through the uh, through the forest with no map in hand? Well, why don't I give you the first line of the next novel? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It is, um, for the second time that month, I woke up with the wrong husband. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I won't even ask what the inspiration. I'm only I'm only at the beginning stage of working out of who actually of what kind of person is saying this. I haven't absolutely got her nailed. I've only written you know five to ten thousand words, I think. Um, so I don't. I'm not really sure who's talking, what kind of character she is. But um, yeah, it's going to be a fun journey finding out what kind of person um, does that. I, I imagine people, listeners will often think that, um, that you know, again, that writers just plot everything out. It's sort of strategic, right? And, when, you know, chapter three is going to be about this. Then by chapter seven, we're going to turn, move on to this and so on. But the idea that you would start with one great idea and then just and just pull at it until it becomes something big is yeah. uh, is, is an interesting way to work. It must be a little fraught at times, too. Yeah. I mean, it, like in, in um, Sally Diamond, the first line is, put me out with bins. Yes. And it, it, she's quoting her father, giving her this instruction, which she follows. But um, yeah, it's always been the first line with me. You know, uh, the first line of lying and wait is, um, my husband didn't mean to kill Annie, Do- Annie Doyle, but the lying tramp deserved it. <laughs> Um, the first line of Unraveling <laughs> Oliver is, um, I expected more of a reaction the first time I hit her. And, you know, from those sentences, I, I, I really try hard to find a really arresting sentence that is going to grab the reader by the throat. And then hopefully I'm going to hold them by the throat and then drop them like a stone in the last chapter. <laughs> That's the plan. That's, That's what the I plan. try to do. Uh, well, it seems to have worked out well for the latest one. Again, it's called Strange Sally Diamond. Uh, Liz Nugent, good luck with the with all the work that one has to do when, they ha- when you have a new book out. And we look forward to seeing the next one as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.